So please turn with me now in your copies of God's Word to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Hear God's Word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god stands forever thanks be to god i'm the kind of person when i read a book or watch a movie i can pick up details along the way but at the end if you ask me what just happened in the movie i will say i don't know I get caught up in the details. I miss the big picture. I miss the parallels. Sometimes I have to stop and and say, wait, what just happened? In our text today, a similar thing happened. I read through, but the more I soaked in it and the more I heard the thoughts of other uh, pastors, I realized there is a massive plot running right through this. It's about two people with one approach to one Savior. Two very different people. We have Jairus and we have the woman. But they both approach the same way 
to the same Savior. And so that's kind of the spark notes, if you will, to help you understand the plot line. That's what I need. A sketch of what's happening before you jump into what's happening. Here's the sketch. Two people with one approach to one Savior. And Mark does his sandwich technique again for the second time in the book so far, where he takes one story, splits it in two, and puts another in the middle. And so we have to read these stories together, and then we see the plot line together. They seem like two independent storylines, yet Mark intricately weaves them together to make his point. Our sermon will follow three points. Two people, one approach, one Savior. Two people with one approach to one Savior. Let me tell you a little bit about Jairus. There's a man named Jairus, one of a handful of rulers in the synagogue. He wasn't a priest, but he was a respected authority in town. He was an administrator with special responsibilities relating to the synagogue's maintenance and scheduling for worship. People knew Jairus by name, by reputation, and they recognized his face around town. He was well-connected, and it's assumed that his position paid him plenty of money. It would have been surprising to some of the townspeople to see a man of such reputation and social stature coming with such need to this new healer, teacher in town. But when they found out why, it made sense. This is an honorable struggle. His daughter was ill. Poor Jairus, this must be a really tough time. He's been so faithful to God in the synagogue that some might say he doesn't deserve this. Some of the people who come to Jesus come because of their disreputable lifestyles and their sinful habits, but not in this case. This one can't be Jairus' fault. How terrible that his daughter is this ill, even close to death. Maybe this new teacher and this new miracle worker, Jesus, can do something to help such an upstanding man and his family. Let me give you a brief sketch here of the woman. There was this woman. She's not so well-respected. In fact, people try to keep their distance because to come in contact with her would render that person unclean for the rest of the day, according to the Torah. You see, this woman was known less by her name than for her long-term hemorrhaging and her impurity. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Until such an impurity is gone, she remains unclean as she has been for 12 years. This woman has not been allowed in the synagogue for over a decade. This woman found her way into the crowd when she heard that Jesus was back in town. She has had quite a struggle. She's been to all the physicians that she can afford to go to, and none of them have been able to fix her. She has spent all that she has because her life is not worth having if she can't be purified. Or so it seems. She's had a tough life. She's exactly the kind of person we would expect to beg for healing from this new Jesus guy. After all, she has nothing to lose. What do these two people have in common? Very little from a social perspective. Very little from a reputation point. But they both share one significant thing in common. They need healing for a dire situation. They need what only... Jesus can offer. You see, the woman's situation was as good as dead. She was not allowed to be in and around the town. 
She was no better, verse 26 says, but rather she grew worse, even though she had spent all that she had to try to fix her problem. Imagine then the pain. If not just physical pain, then social pain, religious pain, and relational pain. She's defined by her needs, and no one can fix her. And then there's Jairus. He's facing a dire situation. His daughter is deathly ill. And then Jesus takes his time, helps this disreputable woman, and in the process, Jairus' daughter dies. All hope seems to be lost, especially as they say in verse 35, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? There's nothing that can be done. Don't trouble him anymore. Imagine the hopelessness of the news of his daughter's death. Even his position of authority, even his connections, and even his resources couldn't help this. Utter brokenness. Maybe for the first time in his life. For someone who seems to have it all together. The shadow of death has covered his heart and his home. No one can fix either one of these situations. They both need what only Jesus can offer. Now, we've probably, as we've listened, identified ourselves with one of these people. We naturally do that as we listen, but if you haven't yet, I encourage you to ask, do you feel more like a Jairus or do you feel more like the woman? Maybe it's a mix. Maybe in some ways you feel like Jairus and in other ways you feel like the woman. Are you a person of influence, good reputation to whom others look for advice or whom people envy for your power or resources? Your difficult parts of life stay pretty well hidden at home covered by your successes and your accomplishments? Or do you feel like the woman, a person known not by your accomplishments, but by your shortcomings? People, maybe even yourself, view you as a problem primarily and then a person as second. You've somehow acquired labels that no one would choose for themselves. Your life is defined by difficulty rather than by success. Here's the point. Doesn't matter which one you are. You both desperately need Jesus. That is the common thread. Every person comes in equal need of Jesus Christ. They may be on two different sides of the world's games, but every single person on his own stands condemned before our God. Those are the two people. They have one approach. This approach is the approach of faith. And where we turn in our anxiety and in our fear and in our distress, it reveals in whom or in what we trust. Where you find yourself when you are struggling shows you a lot about who you think or what you think might come through. Jairus approached in this way. As a man overcome by his situation with death knocking at the door, his precious beloved daughter, just 12 years old, about to die. He has come to the end of himself. He has lost control when he is used to being in control. And that is a fork in the road. A fork with countless options. Maybe you know this point of desperation. And when you have lost control, what do you turn to? Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's self-medication 
with substances or self-improvement or diet. Sometimes it's escape, overworking, sleeping, video games, watching shows or movies. Then that fork in the road, sometimes, usually, we choose any road but the one that helps us. We have a story here of Jairus who chose the right path in this moment. He fell down at the feet of Jesus. With all prestige and manners and civility thrown aside, Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. Can you see that? A man in the finest robes on his hands and feet before Jesus. This is a picture of what it looks like to place one's faith in Jesus. A person, well-dressed, respected, forsaking all reputation and public image, falling down before the Savior who alone can save to lay aside everything else and depend on Jesus. That is faith. Let's look at how the woman approached. She tried to be as invisible as possible. She doesn't carry the same reputation. So she, verse 27 tells us, she came up behind Jesus in the crowd, tried not to be singled out. And then she tried to escape unnoticed because when Jesus went to search for her, Mark tells us she had to come back to him. She had already tried to go out the back door because she knew that she was unclean. She knew that anybody that she touches becomes ritually unclean. But she was desperate enough and bold enough to touch the garment of the one who can save because she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. The reports that she had heard about Jesus... Verse 27, she had heard the reports of Jesus. These reports that she had heard about Jesus led her to action, led her to come. She came to Jesus and to touch him. And when she was faced with a person of Jesus, he searched for her. He found her. When she came face to face with Jesus, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The very little that she had left in her life, she gave to Jesus. On the ground, fell to her knees, just like Jairus had done. A true disciple acts on what she hears about Jesus, and this woman did that. She heard and she came. These are two very different people, but they both came in faith. They both came on their knees. If you notice in the book of Mark, the only other people to fall down at the feet of Jesus are the demons. Just the demons. A true disciple knows Jesus and trusts Jesus. The demons know who Jesus is, but they don't trust him. As Mark tells us, the other people in the story, even the disciples, don't yet see clearly who Jesus is, but the demons know because they are spiritual beings. And now Jairus knows and the woman knows as indicated by their actions. And Jesus encourages Jairus' faith and because Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. The issue here is the encouragement of Jairus' faith. And the woman, Jesus says even more directly to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is an issue of coming in faith to Jesus. The demons do not come in faith. 
They have all the content, but they don't have the trust. And I think it's helpful for us at this moment to go ahead and define the three elements of faith. The three elements of saving faith. First of all, the content of your faith. What, what do you believe? In this case, of course, it's what do you know about Jesus? What do you know? This is, again, the facts. And for Jairus and the woman, they had the Old Testament expectations of the Messiah. They had the promise, the proto-euangelion, that fancy word, the first gospel from Genesis 3.15, where the promise is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. They knew that, and they saw Jesus, and they heard Jesus teach. And so they saw the person of Jesus. He was the content of their faith. He was also the conviction for them. Faith is content and conviction And faith is personal trust. Content, conviction, and personal trust. For Jairus and the woman, they know not just things about Jesus, but they know that these things are true about Jesus. You can know about the speed trap on 59 in Silver Lake, but if you don't think it's true, you're not going to slow down. So many people have heard about the things of Jesus and write them off as fairy tales, no more true than the stories of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Big Blue Ox. When we hear stories and doubt their authenticity, then they have no impact or import on our lives. I'm going to tell you a true statement in my life. There is nothing about Peter Pan that compels me to change anything in my life. Although I have plenty of knowledge about the Lost Boys and Neverland. Why? Because I don't believe them to be true. Now, how sad would it be for somebody to make this statement? There is nothing about Jesus that compels me to change anything in my life, although I have plenty of knowledge about him and his people in heaven. We must be people of conviction who know what is true. Not just the facts of it, but know that it is true and be convinced of its reality because then it carries weight. Then it carries urgency. Even the demons knew the truthfulness of Jesus and his power, and they too responded as if it is true. They came trembling, but they lacked the third element of faith. The world does not smile upon conviction anymore, but we have to be people of conviction. Like the Apostles' Creed that we heard, these are things that we are convinced are true. So Jesus is the object of the content of our faith, but also the truthfulness of Jesus is the object of our faith. There's a content, there's a conviction, and then there's the personal trust. Jairus and the woman both ran to the feet of the gracious, patient Savior. They personally trusted Him and relied on Him. By God's grace, both Jairus's and the woman's resources had run out. And in the face of their inability, they personally fell down at the feet of Jesus. They realized he's the only one who can help them. They realized their need and they realized his superiority and his grace. This is what the demons lacked. Their hearts were rebellious rather than trusting. They refused to submit, but rather tried to submit Jesus to themselves. How often do we witness around us and even in our own longings, even as Christians, parts of our lives where we try to submit Jesus to our desires. We refuse to submit to trusting Jesus And instead, we rebel and we resist and we flail and we try to make this Jesus religion stuff subservient to our agenda and our perspective and our lifestyle preferences. And this is for believers and unbelievers at different levels, varying degrees. 
The good news is Jesus will not be tamed by sinful people. But praise the Lord that the wickedness of people like us is tamed, even eradicated, in the end, through faith in Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus as the content, we're convinced of the truth of it, and then we personally trust Him. Jesus is the object of our faith. Let's look at this Jesus here in this passage. We're in the third part here. We've looked at the two people. We've looked at their one approach. Let's look at the one Savior. After all, He is the object of faith. Mark highlights for us two main things about Jesus. First, His compassion, and second, His power in this passage. His compassion and His power. Do you notice He compassionately goes out of His way to teach each one about Himself? In the middle of their fears... Jairus was overcome by a loss of control of the situation. He was learning what it means to let go of his life and to place it in the hands of somebody else. And so Jesus, knowing Jairus' seed-sized faith, decides to go with Jairus to his home. Although Jesus could have spoken the word and in that moment healed the daughter, he decides to walk with Jairus out of compassion for him. This is a visual of Psalm 23. The psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jairus was afraid. Jesus had to tell him, do not fear, only believe. And then God himself, as Jesus Christ, walked with Jairus through this valley of the shadow of death. That is God's compassion. But even right there, as Jairus stood urgently waiting for Jesus to come with him, Jesus is delayed by the disreputable woman and he lost even more control as he heard the news that his daughter had died. Jesus' response was to care for Jairus' faith, to encourage him to look to himself, to look to Jesus. He said, don't fear, believe. What words of comfort? Confusing, perhaps, when it all seemed so final. Jairus there, hearing the news that his daughter had died, thought maybe there's nothing left to do, but yet Jesus leaves a window of hope. And tells Jairus to look at him. Because through it, Jairus had to trust Jesus. And that is a compassionate lesson when it is a lesson that Jairus needs to learn. And Jesus met Jairus right there. And then there's the woman. This woman was overcome by her shame. She came secretly. She was afraid. She didn't want to be seen, much less to have to talk to this man. This man who's in such high demand with the biggest crowd that's been around in a while. She didn't feel worthy. With anyone else, her impurity would have been spread. But then Jesus seeks her out. And he doesn't search for her in order to reprimand her or to make her an image, to make a scene of it. He wanted to make sure that she knew who the object of her faith was. It seemed that she may have had some superstitious approach to what healing might be. If she could just touch the hem of the garment of the healer, maybe this is the healer that's going to help me after so many physicians had failed. But Jesus makes sure she sees him. She talks to him face to face, and he does not reprimand her when he gets to talk to her. He says, daughter. Out of compassion for the woman, he says, daughter. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is a blessing. This is a benediction. He is sending her with his blessing. 
and be healed of your disease, he says. In both of these situations, you'll notice Jesus touched or, or let himself be touched by a woman who was unclean. He also went in and touched the hand of a dead girl, taking on the uncleanness of any who come to him. What a compassionate Savior! And instead of taking the uncleanness and it spreading around, instead what he did is he gave them cleanness. And it points forward to the time when he took all impurity on the cross. This is the kingdom of darkness being pushed back by Christ the King as he breaks in with the kingdom of heaven, which Mark has been telling us about since the first passage. The kingdom of God is growing. What's interesting is that both of these miracles, although there's a crowd around, both of these miracles are done privately. It's one of those things that I would not have picked up on on the plot without the help of some others. Because Jesus healed both of them privately, he did it for them out of compassion for them. There is still more that Jesus needs to reveal to the world before the full story is to be rolled out. The story of the suffering servant. Look at how the woman's healing is described in verse 29. The woman felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And on Jesus' end, Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out. There was no public show of healing. It was felt in herself and Jesus felt in in himself as well. This was was not a public display to the point where even the, the disciples were confused. They didn't even understand what was going on. They said, Jesus, lots of people have touched you. What are you talking about? But the secret nature of this healing of the woman makes us wait for the public healing. On that cross, Jesus reopened this access to God by tearing the veil of the temple. Just like the woman finally, after 12 years, experienced the presence of God from which she had been excluded for so long. And then with Jairus, where her daughter lay dead, there were only five people given access. Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and Jairus' wife. They were allowed to witness the resurrection. But afterward, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Jesus even kind of downplayed the situation as he walked into the house saying, oh, she's just sleeping, and they laughed at him. By all human standards, she was dead. By, by scientific standards, she was dead. But Jesus knows he has the power of life. He knows that it is not final when, when the power of God is near. And it also points forward to the hope of the final resurrection. Because when we die physically, we don't die spiritually. So Jesus' words here carried hope for these people. And although the resurrection of the little girl was private, it also makes us anticipate the public display of the resurrection. Because on the third day, Jesus rose. God defeated death as Christ rose from the grave, similar to what they got to witness here in the little girl's sick room. And while Jesus is at it, raising the dead, casually he reminds them, don't forget to give her something to eat. He cares for her. He has compassion. Now, I can't blame the parents or Peter, James, and John for forgetting to feed this girl. I mean, after what you've just witnessed, divine power at work, a body, a a, a person come back from the dead. I also would have been so astonished to forget to feed her. But God cares about us so deeply. Let's look at that power that they had just witnessed. 
you'll remember Mark has been talking, putting Jesus up against cosmic powers for three stories in a row. This is the third of three. He went up against the storm, and by the word of his power, he has power over the natural forces. He went up against the man possessed by legion, by the word of his power, was able to conquer the legion of demons. And here, death itself, disease and death itself have no power over Jesus. No one can fix Jairus and no one can fix this woman. Just like no one was able to bind the man possessed by legion, just like no one had ever calmed a storm by the authority of his word, just like no one had ever preached with authority the way Jesus had done. These are a picture of the kingdom of God charging in in its fullness, led by Christ the King. And he has begun that work. And I can't wait for him to complete it when we see it in its fullness when he comes charging back for his people to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And when he says, arise, to Jairus' daughter, arise, we know his word has power. In that very moment, death itself shuddered. In that very moment, with his touch of an unclean body and his voice, death itself was overturned. That's the power of God at work. And when he said to the woman, be healed, he is restoring not just the breath of life, he is restoring relationship with God. She had her wholeness restored alongside dignity and relationship with God. And she was now welcome, not just in the city, but in the house of God, in God's presence. And her encounter with Jesus face to face foreshadows the very presence of God, which will delight all of his children for eternity. Daughter, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That disease is foreshadowing the disease of sin, the disease of death. Jesus restores diseased sinners to a relationship with God from whom they've been estranged because they're on the cross as the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ was offered for humanity. And as he rose from the grave on the third day, Jesus' compassion and his power worked together perfectly for you and for me. The wrath of God was satisfied on your behalf. And the power of Satan was stripped from the enemy. And the love of God was on perfect display on that cross. There, sins were forgiven. And its wages, death, was conquered. There, brokenness was fixed. Your distance from God was mended because Jesus Christ carries his people to the Father in his own righteousness as he tears the veil in the temple. So do you have faith in this God? Is he the content of what you believe? Do you know the, the things about Jesus Christ? Have you heard the story you have tonight? And do you believe that it is true? And then have you personally trusted Jesus? Do you lean on his compassion and power to make you well and to give you life? No matter who you are. If you're more like Jairus and the world doesn't know about the things you struggle with, or if you're more like the woman, and that's what you're known by. Jesus is your only object of faith. He will have compassion on you if you come to him. And he will powerfully heal you from your ultimate enemy, sin and death. Repent and believe in this Jesus. He's the object of our faith.